0: It's easy to think of the book of Ruth as a peaceful and gentle story about the faith and loyalty of an ordinary woman, a foreigner who turned to the God of Israel. On the surface, it's a story about a Moabite woman who married an Israelite. After his death, and in fact, the deaths of all the men in the household, Ruth shows an extraordinary and unexpected loyalty to her Israelite mother-in-law and faith in God. Upon returning to Bethlehem, she finds a new husband amongst the relatives of her dead husband. And ultimately, as we have already heard, she becomes the great-grandmother of King David and thus an ancestor of Jesus. Now, it's not entirely clear when this story was written But it was almost certainly a story in the oral tradition, passed on by word of mouth in many Israelite households across the generations, long before it was ever written down. And I urge you to read it. Read it carefully, in full. It's only three pages long. But just for now, imagine if you can that you lived between three and four thousand years ago and heard this story being told, possibly sitting by a fire after a long day at work. It was one of a large repertoire of stories handed down over many years and through many tellings. From time to time, I wish that I had to understand my Hebrew lessons But I didn't. And reading Ruth is one of those times that I wish it had made some sense. You see, there is humour in this story that we just don't get. But of course, the early hearers and readers would have understood perfectly well. And I might too, if only I'd got to grips with my Hebrew language, nifals and hifals and hofals. Anyway... Thank goodness for good Bible commentaries. Hooray. You see, some of the characters' names seem to describe something about them. So, for example, Elimelech means, my God is king. So every time anybody used his name, that's what they were saying. My God is king. So we deduce that Elimelech was a devout man. The name Ruth sounds like the Hebrew word for companion, which she was. The names of the two sons would have raised a laugh amongst the hearers. You see, Marlon sounds like the Hebrew word for sickness. And Kilion sounds like the Hebrew word for consumption. So you can imagine how it was heard at the time. Verse 2 would have read a bit like this. The name of the man was my God is king, and the name of his wife, pleasant, delightful one, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were sickly and consumptive. So we know where this is heading. You can imagine the laugh. Ruth married the sickly one, and Orpah married the consumptive one. Though we're not actually told who married who until chapter 4. But we know that Ruth was a Moabitess. Yet she was given a Hebrew name. So it's possibly a nickname. Now, about the Moabites. They were not just foreigners. They were hated. They were seen as unclean. They were the worst type of foreigner you could think of at the time. They were thought to be wicked. A people descended from Moab, one of the sons born out of, an, of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. The Israelites thought that any contact with a Moabite would make them unclean. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 3 couldn't be clearer. I'm going to read a tiny little bit of Deuteronomy chapter 3, if I can find it. I'm reading verses M. Um, Just verses 3 to 6. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of, of Baor, from Pethor in Aram. Naharim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam but turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So then why on earth did Elimelech set off for Moab? Well, Desperate times lead to desperate measures. A famine drove them there. But the early hearers of this story would have been scandalized by Elimelech's foolish actions. They would have thought he deserved everything he got. Well, if you will go mixing with those people and contaminating yourself with them, what can you expect but your own death and the death of your sons? As a devout man, Elimelech should have had faith that God would provide for him and his family in Bethlehem with the other people chosen by God. Although Elimelech's household, his wife and two sons, went away empty of food, they were full with God's blessing. God had given them sons and heirs, and this explains Naomi's words in verse 21. I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. This means she was fully blessed by God when she went away, but now she's empty and a victim of God's anger against her family for mixing with those unclean people. So she wants to be called Mara, which means bitter, rather than Naomi, the pleasant one. She believes God has dealt harshly with her because they went to live in Moab. Frankly, though we might think she is, Ruth is no comfort to Naomi at this point. Ruth returns to Bethlehem with Naomi, but Ruth is an unclean foreigner taken back to um, to live amongst the chosen people. No wonder Naomi tried to persuade Ruth to go back to her own family. No wonder the whole town was stirred, scandalized more like. Can you imagine the gossip? Ruth is really not good news for Naomi. Anyway, back to Moab and the scene between Ruth, Orpah and Naomi. The household is now bereft of men, and the prospects for each of the women is bleak. A widow with no surviving male relative to marry her in order that she can be supported is doomed to a life of destitution. All seems lost. Naomi cannot give the the women sons to marry to to restore their name. She has no brother-in-law in this strange land to redeem her, even if she was young enough to bear more sons. Levirate marriage laws at the time required the brother of a dead man to marry his wife so as, provi- so as to provide for her, thus restoring her prospects. But so because her own husband and both of Naomi's sons were dead, she was indeed empty. Now another little quirk of the story, if you understand your Hebrew, is that the name Orpah Sounds like the Hebrew word for back of the neck or nape. You'll have got the hang of this by now. The fact uh, that from the outset, the ancient hearer of the story would appreciate that Orpah will be the one who walks away. We'll see the back of her, the back of her neck. So Orpah is persuaded by Naomi to return to her people and her gods. But despite Naomi's best efforts, Ruth will not be persuaded to return to her Moabite family. And it is here in verses 16 and 17 that we get those beautiful words. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. You see, the very nature of God is lived out by Ruth. And by the end of chapter 4, when you read it, the women of Bethlehem are using the Hebrew word hesed, which means steadfast love, kindness, loyalty and devotion. The very word used to describe the kind of love that God Himself gives. This very word is used to describe the love that she shows to her mother in law, for whom she provides an heir, Obed. You see, if you read the story carefully, and I suggest you do, it's Naomi and not Ruth who benefits from Ruth's devotion. And except at the very end of the story, Ruth's name is not used without being linked to her identity as a Moabite. The story persists in reiterating her dodgy status as a foreigner and outsider, and they didn't come any more outside than her. Women had no say at the best of times in their destiny, but Ruth. A Moabite had even less say. Yet she seized the opportunity to provide for her mother-in-law by gleaning in the field of their relative Boaz. Now widows were allowed to glean in the fields. Gleaning is the practice of collecting corn from the edge of a field that's being harvested. And the Deuteronomistic law states that landowners must make provision of leftover corn that could be gathered for widows. Sorry, could be gathered by widows. Eventually, Naomi sees the possibility that Boaz could marry Ruth, thus providing her with a home. The plan works. But before they can be married, there is a closer relative who could marry her, should he wish to. And Boaz has to ensure that the man with a prior claim on Ruth has been offered the opportunity to marry Ruth, the Moabite. Again, to hear and understand the Hebrew would make you smile. The closer relative referred to by Boaz as friend in our text is called, in Hebrew, Paloni almoni. I quite like that, Paloni almoni. But Poloni almoni means... Mr. So-and-so, not very complimentary. So Boaz clearly doesn't have a lot of sympathy with him, and nor would the early hearers of the story. Mr. So-and-so declines the kind offer of land because with it comes Ruth, the unclean Moabite. So the transaction is made before witnesses for Boaz to marry Ruth, And Boaz, bless him, goes beyond the requirements of Leveret marriage to provide for an unclean Moabite woman and his distant kinswoman. It's not until she's married to Boaz that Ruth is referred to simply as Ruth. She has finally achieved an acceptable status through Boaz. And Ruth eventually conceives and bears a son for Naomi to restore her honor. Ruth is sidelined. Chapter 4, verse 14 reads, The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a family guardian. And then in verse 17, The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, King David. So Naomi comes out of this looking good, ignored by the townswomen when she arrived back in Bethlehem with a Moabite in tow. The women are all over her now. She's blessed again with everything she needs and more besides. She's blessed again by God as she was when she set out for Moab in search of food in a time of famine with her full household. Ruth, on the other hand, comes out of this episode with nothing. She is the perfect model of love and self-giving, yet she is even written out of the end of the story. She doesn't have an active part in the story beyond the end of chapter 3, except as property to be traded and to provide a baby. Ruth demonstrates hesed, that love attributed to God, steadfast love, kindness, loyalty and devotion, giving up everything she can for Naomi, even a son, relinquishing everything and enabling her descendants to be the descendants of Judah. She gives everything for a future purpose and for the sake of others. A glimpse of a gift yet to come. So what can we say about this fascinating story that is maybe not as gentle as we imagined what message were the storytellers trying to convey to their hearers? And what message can we hear today? Firstly, the story challenges our expectations of who is inside and who is outside of God's care and concern. Our expectations are that God will deal harshly with the family because they left Bethlehem for a place believed to be outside of God's reach. They showed a lack of faith that God would provide for them. Remember, at the time, people still believed that the Lord God was their God and they were his people. They believed that God's reach didn't extend beyond the boundaries of the places the chosen people had settled Limelec's family tainted themselves by marrying their sons to those unclean people. As I've already said, the hearers would have thought they got what was coming to them. And yet our expectations are not met by the reality of going to interact with those unclean folks, the Moabites. The worst that you can think of. It is ultimately through a Moabite that the family is restored. So what does this have to say about our own views about people we consider to be outside? If we read the story as it would have been heard by its earliest hearers, the two sons were doomed from the outset. Maybe their fate was not as a result of God's condemnation for their actions but the inevitable outcome for two sickly men. So we see that Ruth becomes as much a part of God's concern in order to restore the honor of Elimelech's name as any of the men. Ruth provides an example of the sacrificial love that is necessary to work God's purposes out. And this story also challenges any notion that a people can have exclusive ownership of God. Ruth responds to God's love, perhaps because of what she learned about God from Elimelech's family. She is an Israelite convert, not an Israelite by birth. She enables us to see a God of infinite love, free to act according to his divine will free to embrace even the worst kinds of people. Anyone is free to choose God just as much as God has chosen a people. This story reveals a God whose response to humanity cannot be second-guessed by anyone. God can interact with people who are not the chosen people. And thus, God's love is shown to exceed any boundaries that humans might conceive and establish. So what about the barriers and boundaries that we put up between ourselves and we and people we consider to be different or unclean, people we fear will damage our reputation or threaten our existence? The Bible shows us again and again that there are no boundaries to who God will love. The offer of being in relationship with people is extended to people whoever they are and wherever they are. Are we really going to be contaminated by interacting with other different people? Or do we trust that God has a broader perspective? Is this starting to sound familiar? Isn't this what God sent Jesus to demonstrate? It seems as though maybe people told the story, but didn't understand the message. And maybe the same is true of us today. The story of Ruth gives us an insight into a God who remains faithful to people who love him. Through all their various predicaments and messy circumstances, A God who works through people with or without their willing cooperation because people don't necessarily have to be willing participants to be part of God's plan. The most unlikely people can be used to bring God's purposes about. Ruth wasn't volunteering to serve God, just to remain with the person in whom she had found something worth the sacrifice of following who knows where. The sort of something we hope people will see in us, that certain something that will make people think, whatever it is she's got or whatever it is he's got, I want that. That certain something being a faith that is shown in our actions. The good news for us is God extends his invitation to mixed up and flawed people, people with a dodgy past and a dodgy ancestry. Even Jesus, as we have seen, has an ancestry peppered with flawed characters and people deemed to be outsiders. And whilst we're thinking about this dodgy ancestry, you might recall... But Deuteronomy 23, which I read a little bit of earlier, states that Moabites should be prohibited from the assembly of the Lord to the tenth generation. Therefore, King David himself should not have been permitted into the assembly of the Lord, being only three generations removed from Ruth, the Moabite, his great-grandmother. David is therefore a Moabite himself. So is David or is David not acceptable in the assembly of God? Hmm. It's worth noting that, this is the, that it's the mothers who pass down the inheritance line, even though their role is submissive and subservient. And this little David conundrum starts to call into question all our thinking about who is and who is not acceptable in the eyes and the assembly of God, both then and now. Ultimately, God will react with all kinds of people. And as the hymn writer put it many years ago, the Lord hath yet more light and truth to break forth from his word. God might be telling us that he is willing to work with people we consider to be different and outside. And ultimately, it's up to God how that works itself out. Meanwhile, we have to be tolerant of difference and see the possibilities in each and every person for God's love to break through in new and unexpected ways. Because the reach of God is wider than you might ever have thought as God works his purpose out through all that we are proud of about our life in Christ as well as all that we would rather leave out of our own stories given the chance which, by the way, through Christ and through what he has done we have been given. Amen.